0: I want to start by asking a question of um, what would you say, if you had to guess, what would you say is the most failure-proof job you could have, um, or maybe anyone could have? What was that? Well, that ruins that opening illustration. A failure-proof job would be something you know you're particularly good at. Uh, Maybe it could be a job or a vocation that, that has maybe just a lower ambition. I know, for example, when I am particularly stressed, I know that I'm particularly stressed when I start to fantasize about my first ever job I had at 16, which was flipping burgers at McDonald's. Because there's like it's just it's just all right there. It's your your world is just these meat patties. It's like it's not hard. And it's wonderfully freeing to not have responsibility sometimes. Am I right? Okay. My answer to that question was Colorado Meteorologist. Right, nobody has, uh, nobody really expects meteorologists in general across the country to, uh, to really get it right because weather is so unpredictable. We're just used to it, but it's just so much more true for for Colorado, right? Because it, you're never right. You could totally coast and be functionally retired as a Colorado meteorologist, and probably no one would notice or care because you just it doesn't matter. It's gonna change, right? Thank you for laughing, even though. Man, that was impressive. Some of y'all like prophetic around here. Okay. I still want you to think about your answer and how you'd answer that because I'm going to revisit this toward the end, and hopefully as we go, it's going to kind of recalibrate a little bit in terms of like how we understand our own assumptions and what we bring to that question. And I start with that in part because, you know, a couple of weeks ago we finished up talking about strange wisdom and how this, the climax of the book of James really is about this is what it means to have skill in the art of godly living, and it is a it includes and necessitates a humble dependence in the midst of it. And so, this morning, what James is doing, he's kind of, he's he's continuing to answer the so what and fill out and trace all of the implications of that in and through the various areas of how his, what his audience is going through. And so, in this passage this morning, James really tackles ambition and this idea of a a strange ambition. What I mean by that is is the seeking to achieve something that's significant, but that also involves risk and uncertainty and and requires planning. That's really kind of the the elements that he has in in the passage. But I want to first, before we kind of even jump into that, I want want us to see how this part of of James actually fits into a, a, a wider section and it's in the smack in the middle of this section that is the proud presumption of boastful ambition. The proud presumption of boastful ambition. If you look, if you have your Bible, um, and if you look at chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, from starting like verse 11 through the first part of verse, chapter 5, um, it's actually outlining and giving three different ways and three different examples of verse 10, or alternatives to it, right? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you, verse 10 says, and now here are three ways, in essence, that we try to exalt ourselves, that we try to be sufficient on our own. And he says the first, in, um, starting in verse 11 through 12, is we slander and judge our brother in order to exalt ourselves over them, right? Because that, that's the motive behind it, Right? And then, he says, we have this boastful ambition, we are seeking to compensate for and to demonstrate an agency or a sovereignty that's not just creaturely, it's like our creator, right? It's 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 more like God, it's trying to be like God. And then, he goes into this really, and commentators actually think that this is probably directed more toward the, the Jewish authorities that are persecuting the church than it is the church themselves, but it still is like, no, no, this... This can be your temptation too, which is economic oppression. To to use people's needs against them, to control them, and to profit from them in ways that do not flourish them, right? So rather than try to cover all three of these this morning, I want to really focus on um, and go into depth on the one that's probably the most tempting for our context, um, which is this boastful ambition. Verse 13 sums it up. It says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Okay, all of us, I mean, there are a few of us I know who are natives here, um, but this this applies to you too. But if you moved here from somewhere else, you literally replaced that with Colorado. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to Colorado and move there and spend time and pursue this job in this location, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be so much better than where we are now. How's that working out? Turns out all the things that, like, you, you, that were wrong with you before follow you. So welcome. I'm here too. Okay. Now, I just want to point out that that doesn't sound like, like boastful ambition. That's just like a decision to move or take a job, right? Like this doesn't sound terribly arrogant to me. But where it does, like it, like it doesn't even say, it doesn't even like come off as a humble brag, right? You know, the kind of faux humility. Okay, this, what's boastful and arrogant about it is the certainty that's being communicated. Let me read it one more time. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. The, the today or tomorrow, what he's saying is the specifics don't matter, in such and such a town, it doesn't matter which town. What matters in what he's trying to what he's trying to um, uh, voice in this verse is the certainty of "I will do it," of the centrality of our ego. Okay. Now, we're focusing on that. The the common denominator in all three of these, and including the one we're talking about, is this proud presumption. Right When Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, he says, you know, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, that's what he's saying, is don't have this proud presumption. And there's two things about this that we should know. The first is that this isn't new. This is as, old as almost as old as time itself. Okay? In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and everything was good, God said, when, when right relationship with one another and with God was flourishing, okay? the snake... Satan, comes in and says, you know what? God doesn't want you to be like him. He wants, you, he wants to keep you from eating this, from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you, you would, if you did, you'd be like God. Now, we've already talked about how, how absolutely uh, absurd this is because Adam and Eve are made in God's image. So they're already like God. So he's implying that it's, he's lying to you, right? But it's the other way around. And in so doing... What, what Genesis 3 is showing us is like this is the way all of humanity operates. We try to be like God. Our striving, our fighting, our conflict is all of us trying to compensate to be like God on our own strength and our own power, to not need him, to be self-sufficient. That is, right, you've heard the phrase, pride comes before the fall. That's the proud presumption that comes before the fall. The second thing about it is it is universal. If you're, if you're hearing me say these things and you're saying, like, well, actually, no, I really try to be very prayerful and, like, to do this thing, and, and like, I don't, I don't presume it. I hold it loosely. Like, okay, yes, and also there is no way you were not influenced and affected by a world that is saturated and is, is, is not dependent on God. It's a world, this world that we live in is constantly telling us and repeating these messages of, that we should be self-sufficient right? That is what it means to live between the cross and the new heavens and new earth until Jesus returns and makes all things new. It is living in a world that is still grasping to be like God above and beyond the image we bear. I mean, let me give you an example of like how, this, like how we don't even realize this is shaping us, right? Um, this was several, maybe a year ago, um, during a staff meeting, we were talking, I think it was me, Maria, and Beth, I think we were talking about table kids, and um, we were talking about how uh, we realized that a lot of, like if you're, if you're a parent, and you have a parenting question, chances are you don't like call up somebody you know who has kids who are older than yours, who's like maybe been through this stage of life. We don't. What do we do instead? Google, Google. you Google it, right? You, you look for uh, some wisdom on YouTube. Digital wisdom isn't, right? Embodied wisdom is. And, and nobody's like, I don't think somebody can help me. It's not a conscious thought that we have. It's a habit. It's a pattern. It's a liturgy that we are shaped by. We don't even realize it. We'd rather be self-sufficient. We'd rather pursue a knowledge that doesn't require us to be naked and unashamed. We'd rather be invulnerable and learn and acquire wisdom. That's an oxymoron though. That's not actually how it works. It's a fake omniscience we're pursuing. Um, Like technology and just like the, the, the access we have to literally the world in our pockets, like that, Slander and judgment, boastful ambition, and economic oppression are, yes, extreme, but still ways that we suspend our disbelief that we are creatures and not a creator, that we are man and not God. We suspend our disbelief about that. We try to be divine. We try to be like God. So why do we do that, though? Like, why do we feel the need to do that? Why, what, what, what fear is it that's driving that, that when we are on autopilot, that is the default of our hearts? Well, and that's this, it's the, the infinite insecurity of finite creatures, our infinite insecurity. Why, why do I say infinite insecurity? Well, it's because um, we believe this lie that I've said many times this morning, that we should be self-sufficient, that there's something wrong with us if we are not self-sufficient. And so boastful ambition, what that is, is a fig leaf that covers it, our insufficiency. It's the means that we have for hiding away our creaturely weaknesses and vulnerabilities that we were actually created with, that are actually good and okay. But because of the fall, because we now know the difference between good and evil, we know that we are exposed and also unsafe in a broken world. So what are those natural weaknesses? James actually lists them. You might not have caught it, but it, it, they're, they are in this passage, and it's amazing. Uh, he says there are three natural weaknesses that we are striving to hide for, from when we have, when we pursue a boastful ambition, and it's ignorance, frailty, and dependence. Right? When verse fourteen is saying, "You don't actually know if this is going to happen. You're not omniscient. You're not God. You can't predict the future. You're actually ignorant." That's okay. You're a creature. In the same verse, when, when he says, what is your life, he's actually evoking language from the, the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, which says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is empty, all is like a mist that disappears, which is the same allusion you, um, uh, that James is using when he says, he's, what he's describing is like the, the morning mist on a lake, and as soon as the sun comes up, it's burned away. That's our life. We're frail. We're mortal. And then de- dependence in verse 16, this is the opposite of boasting and arrogance, is a, humi- a humble dependence. To claim certainty in our plans, in the future, in what we think we are capable of, and what we can do, to have certainty is actually making a claim that only God can make of himself. That's what we're doing. And we know that, that right, even as we're saying this, like, I know that, you know, the gentleman's wine tasting is going to happen if God wills it, and it won't if God doesn't. Like, I I get this, but it's a different thing to be dependent on that truth than to just be sometimes consciously aware of it, right? We don't live like it. Isn't it interesting, too, like, when our weaknesses are exposed, how we react, right? Right? Maybe it's in your work or your marriage with your kids. I don't know about you. My, my boys are constantly exposing my ignorance, frailty, and dependence, right? It's, it's, a, it's a constant thing. How do you react in that moment when, you're, when you are confronted and have a mirror held up to your creatureliness? Do you get frustrated because you failed to do the thing you, have, you know how to do and you know you can do it and you just get frustrated because, you, why can't I do this? maybe maybe you get defensive and when someone says like hey you're insufficient in this area and you say like you see all the other areas i'm i'm sufficient though i'm enough you have to believe me maybe you get self righteous you 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 actually you, you you attack you say no i i know better than you i'm more sufficient i am i do better than you i'm sufficient or maybe you just kind of, this is my favorite, is denial. Like, okay, I know I'm insufficient, but I'm going to try not, harder not to be. You'd think that as a, like, so if you don't know, the table is a church plant. And so, I like, yes, I'm a pastor, but it's a very weird particular subset of pastors called church planters. Um, and we're only a six-and-a-half-year-old church, right? And so we started it in August. We started meeting uh, monthly in August, of 2016 and then moved to weekly in that October. And to be a church planner, you have to have a certain set of uh, skills and temperament and, and interest and passion, like being entrepreneurial um, and strategic. Like my, one of my favorite quotes of all time is from the A-Team. I love it when a plan comes together. I really, really love it when a plan comes together, guys. It's so satisfying Right To be a church planter, you have to be comfortable with risk because even before the pandemic, planting a church had a 50% failure rate. So you might think that I would be more aware, maybe more comfortable, maybe more um, dependent on God in my ignorance and my frailty and dependence. Let me tell you what sermon prep is like for me every week, though. Literally every week, I feel insufficient for this in ways that are good. But I, I, my frustration with myself is rooted in this lie that I believe that I should be able. This this should be easier for me. I should be sufficient. Never mind that I almost walked out the door in my slippers this morning. Right, and then that's just in a re, like in an ordinary sentence. But sometimes, and this is what James is implying to a a community, a strange community that's being persecuted and hunted down and dragged off to jail, that God sometimes allows circumstances that are so obviously beyond our control and our ability to navigate them, and he uses it. He uses it in order to form and to shape and temper our ambition with a greater humility. Humility. Not to erase our ambition, but to redeem it and to transform it and to redirect it according to His purposes. And if, the, like, to use myself as an example, if the pandemic exposed anything in my own sense of self-sufficiency, it's that I have a whole extra wardrobe of fig leaves to cover up my ignorance, frailty, independence that I didn't realize I had or had been using. That I actually led and planted with a a. A proud, presumptive certainty that was far greater and far more obvious than I realized. I said, Today or tomorrow, or probably in five, four to five years, we will plant the table in Boulder County, Colorado, and start an institution that will last there for generations and it will be successful in loving our neighbors and loving God. God willing. God willing. And that's that's the really good news in this, though, is that there is this also strange freedom of humble ambition. When our fig leaves are pulled away by our circumstances, when our insufficiency is exposed, when when we realize we can't do it all and we are creatures and not our creator, then there's an opportunity for a strange freedom of humble ambition. Verse 15, he says it very clearly. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Same flexibility in terms of like what it is you're saying you're going to do or, or how or when or where, but it's all starting with if the Lord wills. Let me, let me say something about this first. I have, I have long had an, an annoyance every time someone says like, hey, we'll grab coffee this you know, this week, you know, Lord willing. I'm like, it often feels like this thing that's just kind of thrown on the end and it's trite and it's this kind of like an automatic thing we just kind of say and don't think about. And so, I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank you. Okay, there we go. Now I'm like, okay, I'm like, oh God, I hope I didn't just say this to a room full of people who say that all the time and I just didn't know. Um, But I found myself during the pandemic actually saying it and meaning it myself. Because it's either trite or it's true. And James says it's actually true. It can't be trite. It can be a faux humility. We will often fake and and try to appear more dependent. That's another kind of fig leaf that we can wear. However, it's true. And it's not a faux humility. It's a humble fruit that is far more than just a Christianese slogan. And so when James is saying... What we should say is the if the Lord wills, we will live this. We will live and do this or that. He's encapsulating and summarizing the entire tradition in Scripture of what it means to have a humble ambition, independence with God. And so let's let's just talk about these three points. Okay, these are three ands for godly plans. It even rhymes. Three ands for godly plans. Okay, the first is this. This is and this is all packed into what James is intending to say with this verse. It is the first is this to, to submit all our ends and all of our means of our plans to God. To submit all of our ends and all of our means to God. If you're like me, we you probably err toward one another. Like I want to do the thing God God wants to do, wants me to do, but I'm going to do it my way. Or we'll say, no, I'm gonna use God's means and like pray a lot, but for my own ends. Right? The importance of and here is so vital because otherwise we are still making the same error. And when we do this, like, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, it might make your plan bigger because you're dependent on God now and not trying to be independent. It might make your plan or your your ambition better because we are naturally ignorant and we are made to be depending on God's wisdom and therefore it could improve it. Or it could make our plan stronger because we're frail and when we actually listen to God and we submit our means and our ends, that means we are going to have the support of the body of Christ as we pursue it too. I actually have... Actively and probably, like, I, would even, I, think, I don't know, I can't remember if I've said this before up front on Sunday or not, but like, I kind of owe a lot of you an apology. Uh, we used to do this thing called an emerging leaders incubator, and we will still, like, you know, do something along these lines here in the future, but not before I do some major redesigning on it. The reason is because I have baked into this a certain individualism and enabling of individualism that I didn't re- even realize when we were doing it. And that is, and it's encapsulated in this thing that we, we did, and, which was like work one-on-one with everybody who participated in this incubator to help everyone craft their own personal mission statement. <sighs> the problem with that is th- that's not biblical. There's actually nothing in Scripture that says, like, we have our own personal mission statement. We're actually called to live as image bearers of God, to, to follow Jesus into loving God and loving our neighbors ourselves, to build up and edify the church. But really, the, our personal mission statement should be the church's mission because the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B for the redemption of all things. And that means, yes, individually, we are out being ambassadors of Christ. We are citizens and exiles in, in, in our vocations, in our plumbing, in our teaching, in our, in our everything. We are, we are multiplying and creating flourishing order in the world, and it's all good. And yes, we have an individual component of that. But any of that that falls outside of what God has called his people as a, as a community too, it's not dependence. It's our plan. It's not the Lord's will. Second thing in our pursuit, the strange freedom of humble ambition is to actively trust God is good and able. Again, we are going to, we are going to probably be, air, air temp, be tempted to, to believe one of these or prioritize one of these more than the other. I have no doubt that God can do it. Sometimes I really struggle to believe that he wants to or he's good. Sometimes that's really hard for me to believe and see, right? And what that means, and this is why when God calls us to prayer, it's not just to check a box or to use him like a cosmic vending machine to get what we want. It is in order for us to be regularly reminded that he is good and he is able. And so all of our plans, our ambitions, must be saturated in prayer and dependence. Verse 15, when it says... If the Lord wills, that is in and of itself an implicit kind of micro-prayer, right? It's assuming a posture that God invites us into in all of Scripture, which is that part of His ends and His means is being with us. Does that make sense? Because let me put it this way. God is not a means to our end because we are not a means to God's end. We We are what God pursues. We are the point of His love and the recipients thereof. Prayer is not just a means, it's an, it's an end. Lastly, we just have to hold all things loosely and accept all outcomes as a gift. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, "'And we know that for those who love God, "'all things work together for good "'for those who are called according to His purpose.'" All things, and our, our assurance of grace this morning was from Romans chapter eight for this reason, because he said nothing, neither height nor depth, nothing your imagination can possibly fathom has a shot at removing you from God's righteous right hand. You cannot lose God's love. He worked too hard to redeem you. Why would he ever let you go? He loves you too much. And that means... As an implication, all things must work together for our good. Even the things that suck, even the things that hurt, even the things that are done in wickedness and evil and injustice, God still, there's nothing he can't redeem, including that. I kind of set us up earlier when I was saying, hey, God might make your plan bigger and better and stronger, right? That also might happen through your plan being mistaken, failed, and frustrated, He uses that too. All of our backsliding and wheel spinning and posturing, God uses and redeems. All of it is an opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good and to grow in Christ's likeness. I mean, just think about it this way. Crucifixion was the most shameful, catastrophic consequence in the ancient world. It's literally the worst end result, and the worst means of getting there that, is po- that could possibly that has ever been invented by humanity, and we have quite the imagination. Okay, that is what Jesus used to save us from ourselves and our self sufficiency. If He redeemed that, and the cross that we wear on our neck or have hanging on a wall in our home, you know it's an it's an instrument of execution not a fashion statement. It's become redeemed into something that is ordinary because of God's extraordinary love. That's incredible that that has been so transformed. There is nothing in your life, there's no plan well-intended or otherwise that God can't and won't redeem. Okay. We're going to move into the Q&A in just a minute, but let me end with this because we need to end where we started which is God's exaltation, the promise of God's exaltation. Verse, Chapter 4, verse 10. Remember, this is the verse that introduces this whole section. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is not a transaction. It is a promise. And the best way I can think to explain that and illustrate that is to actually talk about the, the literal space we're sitting in right now. This building... It's called Bridgetown, right? Um, and I actually remember when we started as a church, the first place I called to see if they were available and we could meet there on Sunday mornings was this place. And I called on the phone and said, like, hey, just to, I know you're an event venue. You do live music and catering. And, like, I just wanted to explore, like, hey, do you, do you, have, do you have anything on Sunday mornings? If it's open, I'd love to, we'd love to be a regular uh, client or tenant, customer the person, uh, the woman who answered the phone starts laughing and said, no, 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 you, you can't afford it. It's like, I, I mean, I get it, we're a church, we're a non but like, you, prove me wrong, tell me. She never told me what they would charge to do that. She's hung up on me, <laughs> okay? Fast forward to the pandemic, and within a week of the of the lockdowns hitting, that event venue that was in here called nieces packed up and left. And so when we're looking at regathering, I, we are trying to figure out, like, okay, the BVSD won't let us back in for a variety of reasons. Um, where are we going to go? And I, the first person I texted happened to be somebody I was thinking about and had been talking about how they're doing in their ministry. Her name is Mackenzie. She's the East Boulder County Young Life director. I'm like, hey, this is really out of left field, but would you happen to know of anywhere... That a church might be able to meet outside of the schools, and she was like, "Yeah, I know this. I know the owners of this building. called Bridgetown, which is where Nieces used to be." I was like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah, they're Christians." I'm like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah." So we meet them, meet them, and hear the story of this building, which is incredible. In 2005, this building was actually built by Christians. Their hope was. Uh, that this would become and would be transformed and, and built and designed as a, a, a coffee shop where it had live music that also played Christian music, and it would be kind of a, an evangelistic outreach opportunity for Christians to interact with uh, their neighbors in a third space, like a coffee shop, we, like we Coloradans love our coffee, right? Um, it didn't really work. It never took off. They tried for five years, and so they ended up selling the business the, the building to the current owners, and sold the business, Nisi's, uh, to the, the people who ended up leaving and are now starting elsewhere in Lafayette, but they kept the name Nices and just made it a live music and, and a catering company. And So I was like, well, wait, why do they name it Nisis? What is Nisi? To answer that question, I need to read a little bit from Exodus 17. Because in Exodus 17, Israel is in the wilderness, trying to get to the promised land when a king ambushes them uh, named Amalek, which, who we talked about in our series in Esther last fall. And Israel is defending themselves, and it's in the middle of this battle, and it says this, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Like God is using Moses in and through and for his people, but it's clearly God's doing, not Moses's. But Moses' hands grew weary because he's frail, like all of us. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, because he's dependent and it takes a church. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. In other words, they won the battle, they survived. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner the Hebrew word for banner is Nisi. And it was hanging over this building the whole time, before and after I called and asked if it was available for God's people to use. I didn't know at the time that the answer was actually yes, just not yet. In fact, in the storage closet behind us, in the concrete is etched The first line of Psalm 127, which says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, there's no guarantee we will stay in this building forever. We have no idea, actually, how long we will be able to stay in this building. And we have some, I hope, humble ambitions uh, in the works that we're going to talk a little bit more very soon about how we can stay in this building and be a blessing to the community around us. I know that's rather mysterious and you're curious now. Hang on, I don't want to speak too soon about some things because we don't know if it's going to happen, but it will, Lord willing, right? So let me, as we jump into the Q&A, but let me ask this, what now is the most failure-proof job? It was a trick question. Because God willing, all of them can be and are. And whether they are in the way that we define success or failure, they still are. Because God willing, we are in His righteous right hand and nothing can pluck us from it. He has finished that work, it is complete. There is no failure possible. That's the gift.